Hello, welcome to the Humble's Perspective podcast with your host Steve Humble. In this episode, I will be reading chapter 24 of my book, For Such a Time as This. Last week's episode ended, Then Elijah Died. If you read the introduction to my book or listened to it on the April 21st episode, then you will know that on July 4th, 1996, our son Elijah died at the age of 23. In this chapter, titled Grace Working Through Grievous Loss, I pick up that part of our family story once again. Elijah's death stands out as the most painful moment of my life to date, and I think the most painful for any member of our family. However, by the time I wrote this chapter, 21 years later, and now as I read it 27 years later, the indescribable pain has passed. My wife and I still feel the grief well up infrequently, but it's now bearable. This terrible event has taken its place in the journey of life, but it left its lasting impact upon us. So as I read, although there might be moments of emotion, I will be reading with gratitude for the 23 and one half years that Elijah was with us, and reading with the hope of joyful reunion in the presence of our Lord, a reunion that's 27 years closer now. And so chapter 24, Grace Working Through Grievous Loss. It was difficult enough to process Jenny's call, summoning us back to the Berea hospital, because Elijah had apparently had a heart attack. The initial shock that followed Dr. Greiser's telling us that Elijah was dead stunned me so completely that I could not respond emotionally for about 30 minutes. We had seen Elijah and Jenny briefly that morning on their way home from their home from their home in Berea to Lexington, where they were to spend the day working at a lemonade stand during Lexington's 4th of July parade, they had swung over to Winchester and had come to our house in order to pick up a package of fireworks that I had purchased for Elijah when driving through Tennessee a few days earlier. It was a short visit, ending, as was our custom, with us all saying, I love you to each other, as Elijah and Jenny headed out the kitchen door. Now, he was dead. According to my journal, I quote, at some point we begin to ask what happened. Jenny and Elijah had gone to Tom and Susan's to set off the fireworks he'd gotten from me earlier in the day. Elijah had gotten tired, so tired that he had to sit on the porch steps. Then he had gone into the house to use the bathroom. He was gone too long, and Tom went to check on him. Elijah answered weakly that he was not feeling well. Tom got Jenny, and she went in and found Elijah collapsed on the floor between the toilet and tub. He roused to ask them to help fix his pants back up. They tried. Tom went to call 911, and Jenny held him in her arms and talked to him. He roused at least once more and asked, what's going on? And then she says, he convulsed once, his face turned pale, his lips turned blue, and he was gone. 
This journal, you may remember, was written in uh, during about a three-week period following his death, and I'll be reading other segments from it, too, in this chapter. Now, apart from the journal, once the paramedics arrived, Jenny told us, for 20 minutes they tried to revive Elijah. Then after his body arrived at the ER, Dr. Greiser told us that he had also worked for 20 minutes trying to revive him. Dr. Greiser went on to say, quote, it was such a massive heart attack that I don't think he could have been saved even if it had happened in the hospital. It's almost certain that it was caused by a defect he had had since birth. Unquote. While we waited for our daughters to arrive at Berea Hospital, I began to make calls to our family and some close friends. I had already called our friend and pastor Bill Livingston to ask for prayer, prayer while I was waiting for Patricia to dress after the phone call from Jenny. Even after just a few days, I was not able to remember the exact sequence of calls to record in the journal, but I did reach Bill Kamenish and ask that he would get hold of our daughters and bring them to Berea as soon as possible. I called my brother Wes and asked him to call our parents in upstate New York where Dad was preaching at a camp meeting. I cannot remember if I called my sisters or if Wes did. Patricia and I or I called one or two of her sisters and asked them to get the bad news around to her siblings. I called my good friend Billy Henderson and I asked him to contact John Meadows whom I had not been able to reach. In the journal entry for July 16, I wrote, Everyone we talked to was stunned. It was so hard to process the reality. It was almost funny to me that a couple people responded first with, You're kidding, as though any sane person would kid about such a thing. I knew they were only trying desperately to grasp Elijah's death as a real possibility. After some period of time, after some calls, after some efforts to comfort others, after some prayers, and after some pacing in the hallway, I broke into sobs and weeping for the first time. Periodic burst of hard crying and deep sobs that came forth seemingly of their own will became commonplace from then until Sunday afternoon. Although I'm not one to cry easily, in this circumstance, I did not hold back, but poured out my pain unchecked. I suspect this was better in the long run than trying to hold it in. By the way, I'm now not reading from the journal again. It was 1 a.m. or later before Bill was able to reach Stephanie and Andrea and get them to the hospital. Bill and his wife, Gina, our fellow elder Rick Beach, and his wife, Margie, our close family friend, Joyce Wilhelm, and Stephanie's boyfriend, Daniel Loveland, all arrived together. Once the girls had arrived, Patricia and I were escorted back to see our son's body. Something I recalled in some detail in my journal. For now, I will simply share these few sentences. I released him to the Lord with tears of deep sorrow, yet mixed with joy that there was no doubt in my mind that Elijah had lived for the Lord, that he was now with the Lord, and that I was choosing to offer the Lord a good offering, the best I had to give. It was a strange mixture of thinking of him in the past tense and knowing that he was still alive in the present tense, though absent from us and from his body. I remembered holding Elijah in the delivery room and along with Patricia dedicating him to the Lord. 
He was too big to hold up in my hands now. But we offered him up in death in the same spirit as we had at his birth. End of the journal entry. After worshiping and praying together in the emergency room waiting area, we all headed back to our house. We arrived about 2.30 a.m. to find John and Vicki Meadows and John's mother Dorothy parked in our driveway waiting for us. Before long, Billy Henderson arrived also, and not long afterward, to our surprise, Bill and Barbara Livingston arrived from Louisville. We spent a couple hours together in our family room, weeping and crying. Sometimes we laughed a little, too, after someone would bring up some special memory. Of course, we talked about things leading up to Elijah's death. For a couple months, Patricia and I had been noticing that he had gained a significant amount of weight. We had also seen him experience shortness of breath a couple times. We were concerned because he did not look healthy, but we assumed it was because he was eating too much of the wrong foods and exercising too little. After all, I was significantly overweight too. Two Saturday evenings before his death, Elijah, Patricia, and I had talked together about our weight issues while sitting at our picnic table with some cold drinks. For two weeks before dying, Elijah had been making a few visits to the student medical clinic because of respiratory problems. We learned later that he had even had at least two EKGs because the first one showed a small abnormality in the heart. So he had another test several days later. When both tests were identical, the examining doctor concluded that the abnormality was Elijah's, quote, normal, unquote. Now that Elijah died, we remembered how the weight he had gained made him look puffy and wondered if that had been a sign that his body was holding water because of the heart issues. We talked about the trip Elijah and several men from our church and from Berea had taken to the Promise Keepers Conference held at the Charlotte Motor Speedway just three weeks earlier, and especially about Elijah and his friends sitting on the unshaded grass under a blistering hot sun all day to be near the speaker stand. We just discussed the hundred plus degree heat that Elijah had worked in that very day of his death during the parade in Lexington. We recalled an incident when two, Sundays evening, two Sunday evenings previous while playing ping pong in our basement, Elijah became so breathless that he had had to stop and lean against the table for a while before he could play again. We wondered if that might have been a small heart attack, maybe even the cause of the heart abnormality that shown up on the first EKG a day or two later. Patricia told us about the time when at age four, Elijah came and asked her to pray with him that Jesus would forgive his sins and come into his life. We recalled how a few months later he asked that on his fifth birthday he be baptized in water and that he be prayed with for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We laughed as we remembered how when he first talked about water baptism, he had wanted to wait until he could get to heaven so that Jesus' cousin John could baptize him. And we laughed as we remembered that on his birthday he forgot about the baptism in the Spirit. He could barely get through the water baptism. His eyes were on a great big wrapped up box that Mike and Jeanette Highness had brought for him. On July 19th, concerning that time of sharing, I wrote, quote, At some point I remembered a phrase from Revelation 22.5, And his servants will serve him, as it says in the New King James Version. The Apostle John made this comment when describing the bride, the city, coming down out of heaven from God. 
that city where the water of life flows out from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The water of life is a river with the tree of life standing on each side, yielding fruit monthly. Its leaves providing healing for the nation. Nations. There's no curse in that city, no night, no need for the light of the sun. In that city are no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. In that city there's no separation from one another or from our God. In that city, Elijah and I indeed will serve our king together and will reign with him forevermore, I declared to the others. Every good th thing here is only a foretaste of that which is coming and which will remain. That's our hope, our faith, our confidence. Come, Lord Jesus. End of the quote. With only relatively few ups and downs, Elijah had walked with the Lord, and the evidence in his life was plain to those who knew him. After a time, Billy Henderson and Bill Livingston got on my computer and began to see e send emails to those on, in my contact list, spreading the news about Elijah's death. Finally, about 5 a.m., everyone was gone. Patricia and I got into bed. She refused to lie down, choosing to sit up against the headboard. I snuggled close and tried to sleep. I don't know if Patricia ever even dozed. I did a few times, for what seemed like seconds at a time. We did get quiet and rest a little until just about 6 a.m. Then Patricia began to weep again, and I held her. Just as her weeping subsided, I started sobbing, and she held me. After crying together for a while, there in our bed, Patricia and I went ahead and got up. I can't remember details. I do know I made some coffee and wandered back and forth between the kitchen and the family room. Every little while, one of us would break into tears again. The other would quickly move over and hold the one crying until the tears had stopped again and the immediate wave of grief had subsided. It was still hard to believe that this was all true, yet the deep pain we felt testified that it really was. By 8 a.m., friends began to show up, usually with food. Concerning those first days until Sunday afternoon, I wrote, quote, something of a pattern began to emerge which continued into Sunday afternoon. I would all of a sudden break out in crying, often with hard sobs, a few times with nearly a keening sound which reminded me of the wailing that characterizes mourning in some other cultures. I never tried to cry, but I never tried not to cry either. The crying spells were unpredictable. I simply refused to analyze my behavior. Somehow I sensed that for once I simply must experience life, not figure it out. Later as people came into us, I might weep with them or I might hold them and comfort them as they wept. It wasn't unusual for me to try to put them at ease, saying, my fountain of tears is dry at the moment, but don't worry, it'll fill up and spill over at any time. Unquote. I don't know how we could have made it through the next few days without friends. Joyce Wilhelm and Gina Kamenich came to serve Patricia, especially by coordinating the kitchen and managing hospitality. Bill Kamenich took a day off of work, a real sacrifice for someone who's self-employed in a one-man business. But he did it just so he could be available to help with whatever needed to be done. I have no idea the number of errands he ran, of details he covered, and of phone calls he handled. 
Others of our church family stepped up and helped selflessly without recognition in uncounted ways. So many people helped in so many different ways that there's not a way to mention all, even if I could remember such details. Billy Henderson was back at our house again by mid-morning in order to accompany Patricia and me to Scobie Funeral Home, where we met Jenny and her mother. Together we made the arrangements for the visitation on Sunday evening and the funeral and the burial on Monday morning. Next we drove to the nearby Winchester Cemetery where we purchased a grave plot. At some point, with help from Billy Henderson and Bill Livingston, we did plan the funeral itself, but mostly Friday and Saturday were like a blur, a seemingly endless line of friends coming by to mourn with us, plus phone calls, flour and food deliveries, lots of weeping, and countless stories remembered. Three of Patricia's sisters, Norma, Rita, and Kay, came from Ohio to grieve with us and to help us through those days. Her sister Frida came on Saturday to stay with Patricia for a week. What a gift that was. Billy was there much of the time overseeing the visitations, helping to control the traffic flow in the house so that we wouldn't become too overwhelmed, and dealing with phone calls. There was a constant flow of people on Friday and Saturday until about 8.30 p.m. each evening when Billy would encourage everyone to leave and begin to urge us to go to bed while he took care of phone calls. My brother had reached my dad and mom by phone soon after I called him on the night of Elijah's death. Elijah was their first grandchild, and they had a close bond with him. Even though our geographical separation and my parents' ministry travel schedule had meant that they couldn't be together all that often. After Wes called, mom and dad tried to go back to bed, but soon realized they were going to be, not be able to sleep. Therefore, they got up in the wee hours of the morning and made the 11-hour drive back from New York to their Circleville, Ohio home. Once home, Dad called and offered to come on down that very Friday evening, but I encouraged them to rest at home. On Saturday morning, they drove to Winchester, arriving at our house in the early afternoon, and they settled into the rooms in our basement. It meant the world to have them with us. I found myself torn, though, since they didn't know our friends and were more comfortable keeping their privacy. I wanted to be in the basement where mom and dad were with my sister Marvine and her family who had arrived a short time after my parents had. Yet I also wanted to greet all the friends who came to grieve with us and to support us. One huge surprise from that Saturday afternoon is etched into my heart and mind. About 4 p.m., Mitch Ramey, one of my two closest childhood friends, called to ask for directions to our house. Although Mitch had suffered with muscular dystrophy since early childhood and was wheelchair bound. That day, accompanied by one of his great nieces, he made the three and one half hour drive in his handicapped equipped van. We were able to get his motorized wheelchair into our walkout basement where my parents were so that they, we could visit. Mitch and his niece were able to stay for only an hour before they had to load back up and drive back to Circleville. What love and sacrifice. It was overwhelming, I wrote a few weeks later. Sunday morning was quieter for a while. Our church family met at the Beach's house to worship and grieve together. We stayed home and had a time of prayer with the family. I wrote about that prayer time in my journal. Quote, the family prayer time was quiet but very meaningful. 
Dad shared some scriptures and some of his thoughts with us, then others of us also shared scriptures and comforting words. We sang together and asked for strength and mercy for the day ahead. Marvin and John wanted to visit Berea to see the college and also Elijah and Jenny's house. They wanted to be able to identify a bit more with the last three years of his life. Dad decided to go too. With the young people, we were too many for one car. Therefore, Stephanie rode with John, Marvin, and Chris, their son, while Dad, Rachel, my, uh, their daughter, and Andrea and I rode together. We drove in from the southern exit and went through town and drove through the college grounds. Then we went past Elijah and Jenny's first apartment. I told how they worked so hard moving alone over New Year's weekend in order to surprise us when they were able to find a small house to rent. I wanted to stop and look at the house. Dad paused, but then drove on saying, that might be too hard. I got pretty quiet and tearful after a while, and he reached over across the seat and just held onto my hand. It was a tender act of fatherly love. I began to share about my relationship with Elijah, about our friendship and hopes of working together. These were tender and precious moments for me. At the same time, we must have been as hard, they must have been as hard for Dad as they were for me since both of us would love nothing more than to have had the same deep fellowship and friendship and working together that Elijah and I had tasted. Our relationship, however, has been a complicated one. We've always loved one another and wanted to be closer to each other. The last several years we have grown much closer, but there's been a serious issue between us since the mid-1970s. Our spiritual journeys differ. Our spiritual perspectives and experiences also differ. But I believe that in our common loss of son and grandson, there's also a deeper healing taking place between us. Anyway, the closeness of those shared moments is precious to me even now as I write nearly a month later. End of that journal entry. I remember that Dennis and Sheila Cole came and served us that day. Not too many besides our relatives came to visit on Sunday afternoon. My cousin Dick and his wife had come from their home south of Atlanta and the other of my two closest childhood friends, Don Benner, had come with his family. To our surprise, Colin Laverne, a good friend since our days with the servants of the Lord, came from Minneapolis. A little more than two years earlier, Colin had lost his wife after a long battle with cancer, leaving him with eight children and great grief. We were able to sit down at our picnic table with Colin for a brief but deeply meaningful conversation. He offered us encouragement and wisdom about dealing with grief. In the journal I wrote about that Sunday afternoon, quote, For me, however, the afternoon was hard. I was very tired. My heart seemed to literally ache. There was an almost physical ache in my chest. I dreaded the visitation. Sometime around 3 p.m. I went downstairs where Dad, Mom, and Marvin's family were. Dad suggested I go and lie on the bed he and Mom had been sleeping in. A little later, Marvine began to play Jenny's piano, which is there in the basement. Her music ministered peace and strength to my weary soul. I found encouragement in just being near Dad and Mom at that time, and Dad always seemed to have just the right words to keep me going. End of that entry. 
My sister Debbie and her family and my brother Wes with his family arrived in the middle of the afternoon. We left home at 4.15 to go to the Lexington Covenant Church's building for the visitation. I wrote about the visitation and the funeral in a letter dated July 11, 1996 to Paul Petrie with his family, who with his family had moved back to Brussels, Belgium earlier that year. I'm going to quote from that letter, which is not really short, but uh, I, don't, I don't have better memories than what's written down here. Writing to Paul, we drove to Lexington Covenant Church and Bill Livingston prayed with us before we entered the auditorium to view Dad, Elijah's body. As Jenny, Patricia, and I, our daughters, and Mom and Dad started down the aisle toward the casket, the Holy Spirit filled us with strength and comfort. Afterward, we discovered that Jenny and I especially were aware of three very strong emotions, excitement, peace, and overwhelming joy. Many times I felt almost apologetic as we stood there greeting and comforting others for hours. Hundreds came to mourn and to comfort us. Some stood in line for two and a half hours in order to see Elijah's body and to hug us and to cry with us. However, none of us in the family had many tears that evening, and I had none. I was filled with elation that Elijah was with his God and that the kingdom was in some in, intangible way being advanced significantly in all this. The excitement, peace, and joy prevailed through the evening, through the night, and all through the day of the funeral. Patricia was not experiencing these same emotions, at least not so intensely, but she also was full of faith, hope, and comfort, even though physically weakened and faint at times because of the stress and the lack of food. She's found it hard to eat until yesterday. The girls were serene and trusting in the towers of strength. My parents were stately and imparted encouragement, strength, and hope to us. Just before the funeral began on Monday morning, God gave us insight into these strange emotions. Elijah's high school senior year Bible teacher, Joe Bray, came in and gave Patricia and I copies of an essay in the form of a letter that Elijah had written in the school year 1990-1991. Mr. Bray had found the paper in his files the day before Elijah died, and then he remembered it upon receiving word of Elijah's death. I've enclosed a copy for you, misspellings and sloppy writing included. The assignment was to spend time alone in a cemetery to ponder death without the hope of our faith. You will see, Paul, that the excitement, peace, and joy we are experiencing were God's way of letting us share a special gift and revelation with Elijah. And now I pause in the letter to Paul to read the enclosed letter slash paper that Elijah had written for Mr. Bray. Dear Mr. Bray, first off, I want to say thanks for this opportunity. It was great. My experience was very different from the rest of the class to my knowledge. To begin with, I heard several people say it would be freaky or scary to walk alone in a cemetery. I didn't ever feel this way. I was kind of excited about the trip from the beginning. And when we got there, you asked us to be silent and serious in our walk. You also asked us to try to forget heaven and the promises of God and act like we knew nothing of the afterlife. 
sorry, Mr. Bray, but I failed you in this. I really, really tried to do it, but it just didn't work. Looking at the gravestones, I understood the hopelessness people who don't know God have felt. I felt sorry for the people who tried to make it all better by pretending the dead are sleeping or are just on a trip. Personally, I think this is wrong. It tries to bypass some very real emotions that should be expressed. I firmly believe we shouldn't be run by our emotions. However, Jesus himself cried bitterly, even to the point of anger when Lazarus died. Anyway, I understood others' points of view about death. For myself, it was different. I felt the peace and solitude almost as soon as we were in the gate, but the longer I was there, the more excited I became. I felt God's presence as soon as I started walking, not among the graves, but on me, and this overwhelming sense of joy fell on me. Also, as I walked around, God showed me how foolish other religions are. No other religion gives people a way to correctly handle their thoughts, feelings, and emotions surrounding death. Christianity does. Through Christ, we've been given victory over death. That victory is what gave me joy and made me excited during the walk. I hope I've covered your assignment, but this is what happened, and I'm glad it did. Oh, I did get scared one time. I leaned down to clean off a headstone, and it fell over. I thought I was in trouble, in trouble. Enlightened and victorious, Elijah G. Humble. And then Mr. Bray's comment written here, great work, PTL. Back to the letter with Paul now. Hundreds filled to standing room only, the Lexington Covenant building, including the foyer. We have no way of knowing how many never got in. There we worshiped, offering up our son as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to our Lord and God who is worthy of all. I'm enclosing a copy of our invitation to worship. Billy Henderson read comments about Elijah from family and friends and we learned that our son was far deeper in his wisdom and understanding and far more effective in his influence and ministry than we had ever imagined. Some key words people used were without guile, wisdom, discipler, mentor, friend, deeply spiritual while fully engaged in this world. Bill Livingston preached an absolutely profound and superb message on embracing fully the pain and the joy. My brother, who's a student of preaching and not ineffective himself, reportedly said later, I guess I'll have to quit preaching now. It took close to half an hour to get all the cars into the cemetery, not including the drive there, and all the people to the gravesite. On the way, we shared Elijah's essay with Jenny and my parents. While we waited, we could not mourn. Frankly, Jenny and I wanted to get up and dance on the green carpet on which they were going to set the casket. Knowing it would, that would be scandalous to some, we held ourselves to wriggling and grinning in our seats. And then we had the inspiration to have Bill Livingston read Elijah's essay at the beginning so everyone would know what we were feeling. He read it masterfully. We all laughed, and as he finished, the crowd broke into applause. Then he read two comforting passages of Scripture and prayed. 
Jenny started to sing, but John Meadows got there first, singing out as a declaration, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. As that ended, Jenny began what truly expressed our thoughts and feelings. She began to sing, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. There by the grave we sang and clapped and rejoiced, and I think I know what Peter felt when he said, let's build three tabernacles here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Even now, three days later, I have excitement, peace, and joy at the very thought of visiting my son's grave. Occasional tears and the lonely ache are again with us, but so far there's been no moment when that taste of eternity has not also been present with us. Yesterday was Patricia's and my 25th anniversary. God graciously granted us a day of his presence, of painful sweetness and joy, and only the occasional tear. This morning I woke to hold my dear wife as she cried one more time. We don't know, of course, what the path of grief and suffering will be in the days ahead, but we have tasted heaven and we are sustained by the Father of all comforts who comforts us in our distresses. We are surrounded by family and friends who are carrying us in love and prayer. And we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, which includes our beloved son, Elijah, who is cheering us on and calling for us to overcome. I hope this doesn't sound to you like whistling in the dark or like sweet platitudes, but I must declare God is good, God is faithful, God does all things well. In the years since, I've shared many times with others about the way my dad seemed to set aside his own grief. This is after the letter, by the way. The letter ended with that declaration, God is good, God is faithful, God does all things well. In the years since, I've shared many times with others about the way my dad seemed to set aside his own deep grief in order to strengthen me and mine. His care for me in those days continues to be a testimony of true fathering in action. Dad cared for me with God the Father's heart. Well, that's the end of chapter 24. The funeral is over, but our journey through that lonesome valley, the valley of the shadow death, was just beginning. For the sake of any listeners who may be in that valley now, or who might face it in time to come, in the next episode, I will be sharing more of what I experienced and learned while grieving and trying to pick up the pieces of what felt like my shattered life once again. Goodbye till then.